All right, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 3. We are continuing in our series today. We're going to conclude with the remainder of chapter 3, which I am dubbing the good news up to this point, at least from Romans 1.18 until Romans 3.20. We've heard a lot of bad news, a lot of negativity, a lot of things that, that Paul, the author of, of Romans, is trying to communicate so that people understand how to worship Jesus Christ, you must understand what it means apart from Jesus Christ and what he is fundamentally said, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, in so many words, there is no hope. But he hasn't really mentioned Jesus Christ that much. He's referred to it as the law, which is essentially the, 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 the way God revealed himself to the Jewish people and how to live, and they weren't able to do that successfully. And then, and then there are people who were not Jewish, called Gentiles, that God didn't reveal himself to, but then chose their own way to live despite. And so the point that Paul's making up to this point is that there's a way to be right with God. And by right, that means able to be in his presence or in eternity or for lack of a better way of describing it, go to heaven. There's a way to get to heaven, which most, if not all, people want to go to. Maybe someone in a rare moment will boast and, and express a desire to go to hell, but that's usually always misinformed on the reality of what they're saying. The average person, whether they believe in Jesus or not, hopes to go to heaven. Here's the proof of this. Many of us have been to funerals of people that we know do not believe in Jesus Christ. And one of the first things you will hear the preacher who's overseeing that funeral say is something like this. They are in a much better place. As if the mere act of dying removes you from the suffering in this life despite the suffering that you've caused. In fact, from my own personal experience, being from my background and where I come from, there were many young guys that I should have been like them and were killed in the streets, but I was not by God's grace. And so there were times where we knew this person's life too well to know that there's no way he's in a better place. There's no way he's in a better place. But that's the going rate, is they're in a better place. As a matter of fact, it's almost inconsiderate to acknowledge that someone who didn't believe in Jesus that passes away is somehow experiencing eternal consequences for doing so. And it's more inconsiderate now as we live in a culture of anything that offends me, you must stop. So the main point that, that Paul is trying to do, as we looked at last week, is evaluating culture and people by God's word and not their own standard for themselves or even our standard for other people. And that becomes difficult because God is not unclear. God doesn't have I think so's about people's eternity. You know, you, there, there, there's on one occasion in the New Testament, Jesus did say you are not far from the kingdom of God. It means you got some things right, but you've yet to believe in me. But, he's, but the scripture is very clear. You believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, you go to heaven. You reject Jesus, you will go to hell. There's no gray area. Now, up to this point in Romans, Paul has been laying out humanity's problem, which is they cannot we cannot obey God. Even when we get the rules, we cannot obey God. Now, some of us in here are more technically minded than other ones, right? But I'm the type, I know me personally, when I get something and I get the instructions, I feel like I'm in sometimes in a worse place with the instructions than without them. I'd rather just look at the picture and try to figure it out, unless it's from Ikea. Ikea makes you feel like you could be an engineer. You put a desk together from Ikea, you feel like, man, I could work for NASA 
after this. <laughs> I mean, Ikea makes it simple. You know, you go to Ikea and you're like, hey, baby, I think I want to start building stuff as a part-time job or something. And then they order something from somewhere else and you realize, what, hey, do you see, what screw is this? You're calling people look online, look, going to YouTube University to how to put together a couch. <laughs> DYI, do it yourself, are the three letters I hate the most. And so there's this reality that even if you got the instructions on how to do it, you still can't do it. And so that's what God's law was. God said, okay, here's the instructions for you on how to live, and they still can't do it. And yet people were confident because they received those instructions that they're killing it. And Paul up to this point has said, here's the bad news, you're not. You're not. And there are consequences because you're not killing the game right now. That's been the bad news. But now, beginning in verse 321, Paul's going to transition to the good news. So how does this happen? If me receiving the law, which are basically instructions on how to live, if I can't put this thing together with the instructions, then I'm done. He says, well, not so fast, not so fast. Let me explain the good news. Why you're not finished, you Jews, and why those who are also not Jewish, called Gentiles, why you're not finished. It's not over yet. There's more news to come. Now, we're going to read these 10 verses in verses 21 to 31. This is, this is a, again, this is a very, Romans is a very technical compound book. So this is not the Ikea instruction manual, Okay. This is the one from Germany, okay? This is the German instruction manual, and it's written in English, but it's written like they, it's written in English, but like they would say it in German, so you read it, and you're like, I, I don't understand this, okay? So it's technical, but we're going to walk through it, and hopefully it'll make sense. Now, for some of us, we've heard some of these things before. It may just snap into place, but for others of us, if it doesn't, don't be discouraged, all right? We're going to turn this German manual, hopefully, into Ikea, all right? And if not, I'm going on sabbatical after that. You're going to see me for a few weeks anyway. You won't have to worry about it. All right. Beginning in verse 21, I'm reading from the ESV. We're going to read 10 verses, and then we're going to jump into this. All right, here we go. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? Is it excluded? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No. On the contrary, by law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there was one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the un uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. You guys, this looks like it pretty much makes sense to everyone. So we could just end now and then sing and then do communion and go from there. Oh, I'll take a few minutes and try to explain it a little bit. How about we do that? All right. To understand this, to understand this better, at least, there is this word righteousness is used six times in this passage. I think eight if you count righteous, okay? There are different ways that righteousness is being used in the passage. So just like any other language, this is taken from, from Greek, okay? Biblical Greek, Koinean Greek, all right? Just like in any language, Depending on the context of how that passage, you know what you're talking about, right? So let's say, I've done this before, but let me say this again. If I say, hey, they're over there, you know what there I'm talking about. If you were spelling it, you know you would spell, you wouldn't spell T-H-E-R-E -E when I say there. The first there, 
But then over there, you would know it's T-H-E-R-E. You know its location, right, by the context. If you say, if I said, um, hey, they're going to the store, well, you know by default what context that means. That means they are. So if you were writing that down, you wouldn't put they're going to the store, T-H-E-R-E, because that would be wrong grammatically, right? So in every language, how the context in which the word is said determines what it actually means. And so in this passage, it's no different. So the word righteousness has a few different meanings. Let me say what these are, and then as they come up, we'll go through these. Okay, there are a couple different ways righteousness is used in this passage alone. All right, one of the first ways righteousness is used, it means this. A person's legal standing before God. So it means not guilty. Righteousness means you are not guilty before God. Okay, that word also is justified and justification. Those words are sort of overlapping and synonymous. There's righteousness is you are not guilty before God. It says you're righteous. Righteousness also means God's moral perfection. It means God's perfect character. God is holy. He's righteous. Talks about his righteousness. It means his moral, perfect character. Last week, we did a little analogy on a wedding dress, right? Beautiful wedding dress. If it gets one stain on it, that dress is going to be stained. No matter how small. Once, you, once it's noticeable, that dress is done. It's finished. So ladies who intend to get married, and Lord willing, no jelly donuts before you, as you put your dress on. So God's perfect character, all right? And then righteousness is also used to describe God's justice, his judgment towards sin. God's righteousness will, it demonstrates his justice, his judgment towards sin. And this is the reality. Here's the catcher. All sin will be punished by God. There is no sin that will go unpunished. The question is not who will get away with sin. The question is always who receives the punishment for it. All sin will be punished by God. The question is who receives the punishment. The individual who did it or Jesus Christ? Is it Jesus Christ or the person who did it? Thief on the cross. Jesus is hung just moments before he's about to die between two thieves. One of the thieves selfishly says, if you're the Messiah, then get us down from here. What are you doing up here with us? Get us down if you're really the Messiah. The other thief says, what are you talking about? We deserve what we've got by being here. But he is not. This man is innocent. Then he says to Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? So he's expressing faith in Jesus. Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. So that, that thief had his sins forgiven and Jesus' punishment became his. The other thief went from one punishment to another for eternity. Everyone's going to be punished for sin. All sin will be punished. The question is, who gets the punishment? And this is the message that Paul is bringing. This is the good news in this passage. Now, here's the goal, because when we read stuff like this, our minds think, what am I supposed to stop and what am I supposed to start? Let me just say this emphatically right now. Sometimes God's word isn't about stopping or starting. Sometimes God's word, the application, is to be in awe of who he is and what he's done. So if you don't walk out of here with five things to do differently, then, the, then that's not a problem. But what we should walk out of here is like, wow, that is amazing. Jesus is amazing, and that's hard for us. It's hard to have our affection stirred that way. It's hard to do that because it's normal. We're sinful. We're distracted. We don't always get it. We don't always care. Those things are our reality. So it's hard for us to see this and think, wow. So to assist that, let me add one, one thing, one passage from, from, from John chapter 1. I just want us to remember this. Keep this in your mind. We're going to come back to this a little bit later. 
John 1, 1 through 3, just remember this as we go through this passage. It says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, so the Word is a he, Jesus, spoiler alert. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Okay? Hold on to that. So Jesus is God, was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Jesus. Okay? Hold that thought. Let's look at the passage here. Look at verses 30, 21 and 22. We're going to call this true righteousness. True righteousness. Here's what it says. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. All right, so we've had this really complicated, meaty discussion up to this point, and this is the first time that this aspect of God's righteousness has been brought back up. We haven't seen this aspect of God's righteousness, the gospel, Jesus Christ. We haven't seen this since Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. From Romans 1.18 to 3.20, Jesus has been relatively absent from the argument that Paul's making, and it's because he's been talking about the bad news. But now when he comes back to the good news, now he has to insert this reality. So he begins with a but now. But now. But now, so now let's talk. Now let's talk about the good news. Apart from the law, which I've been talking about for the last two chapters, Apart from the, the law, the instruction manual that God gave the Jews on how to believe and how to live that they couldn't do, apart from that, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested to, witnessed by, promised by the law and the prophets. So here's what he's saying. But right now, but now, apart from the instruction manual, this aspect of salvation, this revelation, this story unfolds differently. Now it changes. Now when he says righteousness, righteousness here is used as the way a person has a right standing with God. Look at the context. But, apart from law, but, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and prophets. A person's right standing has been revealed attested by the law and the prophets. Verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. The righteousness of God, the way a person is right before God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe since there is no distinction. Now there's moral perfection, there's God's justice, and then there's how your status is before God. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, as hard as this is to imagine, you will stand before God, we will stand before God, and somehow that faith and that perseverance to the end will have God see us, even though we're aware of our failings, God will see you as not guilty. Not guilty. Now keep in mind that God knows who belongs to him. He knows the people that are pursuing him, that are trying to persevere in him, that struggle but get back up. He understands who his children are. He is not confused as we are. God doesn't have I hope so's when it comes to did that person make it. He knows. And he will say, not guilty. Not guilty. You are righteous. The righteousness of God is through faith. The not guilty of God is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And this is what Moses and the other prophets have been explaining, preparing us for. Your standing before God it's through faith in Jesus Christ, not the instruction manual that you were given. 
And he uses this phrase, to all who believe, since there is no distinction. So he's saying, all the people who believe will get to heaven and be with me through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe. This shows God's faithfulness to people. Because though, here's the problem. Here's what they were facing. We're going to see this in just a moment. Because God was the God of the Jews initially, and then he became the God of the Gentiles. From God's perspective, I'm the God of all of these people. But I chose the Jews in which I'm going to reveal myself first. But even if we went back to Genesis, the promise of Abraham, he says, you're going to be a blessing to all nations. And if you go, if you fast forward to the Exodus, when the Jews were coming out of the Egypt and crossing the Red Sea, it says that the Jews and others came. So even in that transition, it wasn't only Jewish people. In Jesus's family line, he has people like Rahab, a Gentile prostitute. Can you imagine that? Imagine her life. She's a prostitute. She lies so that the Jews can actually attack the people that she lives in. They spare her life, and then she becomes the Messiah's relative through marriage over time. That is not an advocation for prostitution or any <laughs> sinful. I'm not saying pursue sin and God will... We're already sinful at times, right? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this to all who believe shows a faithfulness to all people where God provides a singular way of salvation. So in other words, it may come from the Jews, but they are not exempt from having to come to Jesus. So salvation may come from the Jews, but everyone has to come to Jesus Christ. One way to be saved, one way. This is the true righteousness of Jesus Christ. But then the question becomes, well, why do we need that righteousness? Why do we need that legal declaration by God? Why do we need Jesus Christ to come? Why do we need him to come? Why righteousness is verses 23 and 24. Here's why. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I love that. It's just a, just a straight sentence, brief, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In last week's message, I made a comment based on the language of using that their lips are like venomous, uh, vipers and venom. And I said, I think that points back to Genesis 3, because it said he's like a, like a snake, a serpent deceiving. And that's, that's all the description of, of Satan. I still believe that this passage has Genesis 3 in view, particularly in this in verse 23, for it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is a, that's a great overarching statement to define what happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve took from the fruit and bit into it. And then all humanity at that moment basically inherited defining good and evil on their own. So when it says all sinned and fall, fall short of the glory of God, I think it's looking back to Genesis 3 to say that that's a fundamental reality. That's a reality. But it's not only that, because if you look at the Greek word, it's a continuous thing. So it's saying all have sinned and fall short of the glory. It's not sin in the past tense, but it's continue in sinning. So it's not just the past tense act that now we're all guilty. It's we continue to be guilty consistently. And by saying all have sinned, this covers the people who received the instruction manual, the Jews and those who didn't. Now everyone's trying to put together this couch and it's not working. He says, all have received, have fallen short of the glory of God. Then in verse 24 he says, but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This word justified, again, is another word synonymous with declared, acquitted. You're declared, you're acquitted, not guilty. Justified freely by his grace. Now, in my, in my version, in the CSB, there's different translations use these words differently. They interchange these words. But in verse 24, it says they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Look, I... 
This passage that we're reading today, in particular, I think verse 25 more than ever, I think verse 25 is the most important verse in all of Scripture, personally. I think it's the most important verse in all of the Bible. And in this passage, in these 10 verses, God is using, he's trying to help us understand the significance of what Jesus did by using different language to get at the same thing. But he's trying to help us understand that there is a transaction that's taking place here. There is a transaction, almost a financial transaction. There's a transaction happening here. And so God is, through Paul, is using a lot of different language so that we understand what all of this means. So he'll use righteous, he'll use justify, he'll use redemption. Redemption is sort of like this sense is the redeem is a release because of payment has been made. God has been satisfied. The payment that was owed God, the debt that was owed God from all humanity has been paid by Jesus Christ. Now that may... Cool, yeah, we've heard that before, but if you take into account that that Jesus is the same one who was with God, who was there in the beginning, who's the word of God, who created all things through himself, that same God who created life is now going to give his own life for the life that he created and say, I will cover them. Now, I don't know what everyone in here believes, but there's no there's no other religious context in which the God says, I created you, I gave you life, and now I'm going to give my life for you. Many of us may do that for someone we really love, but that would be someone we really love and there's, but God doesn't love, the Father doesn't love anyone more than his son. It would be very difficult for me to choose my son's lives to give them up for someone else, especially when I know that they're going to take advantage of that grace after my son dies. The God, the word of God, who all things are created Without him, nothing has been made. Who, who gave life is now going to give his life. They're justified freely by the redemption. The payment has been made. So we've been redeemed. We've been bought. We've been purchased. There was a debt. You owe God. Whether you feel like it, whether you believe it or not, you owe God. And God is going to get his payment. He is not an absentee landlord. He's a merciful one. But at some point, he's going to require payment. And you cannot avoid the phone call. This compound language is used because God wants us to know this is very serious. Why righteousness? Why do we need that? Because all of sin and fall short of the glory. And one of the key words in this passage in verse 24 is freely. Freely. That's important. That's an important word. Freely. Freely. We'll come back to why that's important a little bit later. We've got true righteousness. Why was righteousness necessary? Now, how did righteousness come about? Verse 24, he alludes to the fact that they're justified freely by, by grace in Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 25 and 26. And as I stated, I stand by this, and people can disagree, it's fine. Some people like steak, some don't. I don't care. This is, I think this is the most important verse in all of Scripture, verse 25. I know some people say, John 3, 16, this one to me. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. 
God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Now we get to the heart of the most theological truth ever. And this is where, again, one, I have to see, because my heart, because I'm easily distracted, because I'm bored, because I'm sinful at times, because of those things, I don't always care. So I need to find ways to think, make this amazing. And so to me, I go back to that John 1. I go back to that and think, you created all things. All things were created through you. Since the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. So nothing has been created. No human being, nothing has been created apart from Jesus Christ. He gave life to men, it says in verse 4. And now he gives his life. And he explains it. This is incredible to me. And I don't know, I know some of, some of our translations are different. Some of yours might say, and God displayed or he put forth. The CSB says presented him. I, I, don't, this, I don't know if this was Paul's intent, but when I read God presented or put forth or displayed, it almost, it's like a ceremony. It almost feels like, like if, I'm, if I'm presenting something to you, it's almost like you're greater than me, and I'm presenting to you what I have to offer. And we know that's not the case. We know that we're not greater than God, but just this, this idea that God presents or displays or, or puts forth, this is a, a process in which God the Father has orchestrated putting forth, presenting his son. But he's not presenting them to us because he's not, he's dying, he's doing something for us. He's not trying to impress us. He's presenting his son essentially to himself. Remember when Abraham was walking with Isaac? Isaac was a little boy and they were going to do a sacrifice and Isaac said, Father, where's the, where's the sacrifice at? And Abraham knew that God had said, go sacrifice your son. And he said, the Lord will provide a sacrifice for us when we get there. So they get to the place, and he ties them up. And, you know, I mean, you know, the story never tells us what Isaac is thinking, right? But Isaac was smart enough to ask his dad, where's the sacrifice? So he was sharp enough to be like, hey, well, where's the, uh, where's the thing <laughs> Where's the bull or the ram or whatever we, we kill in the day, Dad? He was smart enough to ask that. So don't think for a moment that Isaac isn't there looking at his dad, wondering, you're tying me up the way we tie up the animals that we're going to kill. And this is Abraham as a father. This was the son that he has been promised, the one that he has been waiting for. And he grabs the knife ready to kill his son with his son watching Looking up, I imagine he was heartbroken but had faith. Ironically, God doesn't ask people to do stuff that he is unwilling to do. So it wasn't like, oh, that was rude. That was mean of him to give, tell him to give up Isaac when he promised Isaac and he's been waiting for Isaac. Yeah. I understand what you're saying from a parent's perspective. But God says, I'm going to give up the son that I have been with and never have been without. I never had to wait for him because he's always been with me. And I'm sorry, songs say stuff like, I'm the apple of your eye. No, we're not. He is. Jesus is the apple of the Father's eye. We're not but we're connected to Jesus when we have faith. So then we got a little applesauce in our eyes too. <laughs> we get to drink a little bit of the apple cider, right? Or apple juice. I don't like apple cider. It has a little taste. That's probably not helpful, but 
But God presents him as this atoning. This is one of those other words, atoning. This is another word that God is using, like redemption and redeemed, atoning. He's making amends. This is all transaction language. This is a, it's a consistent theme where Jesus is, is writing a wrong. You're, if you got the ESV, it says he's the propitiation, right? The propitiation just means he satisfied the anger of God. Satisfied the anger of God. Amazing to me. It's amazing to me when I think about the flood in Genesis. I've said this before, but I'm still getting, this is the stuff that helps me cultivate awe in God. When I think about God angry at humanity and spares only eight people, Noah, his three sons and their, their wives, along with some animals and stuff like that, and, and then he kills everyone else with the flood, millions of people, carnage and bodies everywhere. That displayed the wrath of God. And most of us, if we saw that in like a movie with CGI, like, like those movies that could, there's some movies, that, like the one movie that was Noah that came out, you know, sometimes if they just followed the story, it would be better than what they're doing. I don't know what these people are doing. But you had, like, these rock angels and stuff like that. It was just ridiculous. It was 1% on Rotten Tomatoes. But, but God kills all the people and all other animals that are in the world because he's angry at their sinfulness. But because he spares Noah, his three sons, and their four wives, that means that that was not the full wrath of God, even though it killed all those people through water. It wasn't the full wrath of God because eight people's wrath didn't get, it, didn't get judged. So when Jesus was on the cross, God didn't spare him anything. He got the full wrath of God. So whatever Jesus experienced on that cross was more severe than the millions and millions of people that were flooded to death. All the blood, the carnage, and how that displays the wrath of God. There are people who think God is vindictive because he did that. He's evil. He's mean-spirited. All of that was nothing. Whatever Jesus experienced in those six hours on the cross, whatever he felt spiritually, that connection was severed on some level and was so significant that even Jesus, in approaching that moment eight hours earlier, said, Father, take this cup from me. The first time in his whole life, he's, his whole life, from the time he was 12 in Luke chapter 3, when he told Joseph and Mary, what are you, why were you looking for me? You know I'd be in my father's house? His whole life told his disciples, the son of man will be handed over to the Romans and then will be killed and rise on the third day. But the thought of that reality as he approaches it, he tells his disciples, my soul is so sorrowful. I feel the pain of death. And he goes and prays. And it was so significant that the father sends an angel to comfort him. And it says after that, he played earnestly all the more. So whatever that angel said wasn't cutting it. Because he prayed more and his sweat were like drops of blood. This atoning language is Jesus satisfying the wrath of God. And it wasn't like it was nothing for Jesus to do. We're like, yeah, looking forward to it, man. Let me go ahead and die. I'll be back in a couple of days. Y'all dudes, I see y'all. What I was if I see y'all Sunday. Now nah, I'm good. Like it's no, nah, that's not how it was for these people. That's not how it was for Jesus. He realized this is going to be serious. Since he presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith, the common theme is to receive through faith. In fact, when we get to chapter 4, we'll see the importance of faith that, that predates sort of the instruction manual that was given to the Jews. And he says this, to demonstrate his righteousness. This is righteousness described as God's moral authority. 
You see, God cannot let sin go unpunished. So to demonstrate his moral superior, his moral perfection, he has to punish sin. So he does it to Jesus Christ. That's amazing to me that the one who created life and gave life now gives life, gives his own. So he so he he did this. To maintain his moral authority, he has to. And then it says this. This is amazing to me in verse 26. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith. It's like a tongue twister, right? God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness, his moral character. At the present time, to declare so that he would be righteous, moral character, his justice. So God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness, I'm sorry, which was his justice. That's his judgment against sin. Presented Jesus, demonstrates his judgment against sin so that he would be righteous, morally right, and declare people not guilty, righteous, by the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So all three are in play. God's judgment towards sin protects his character because he's a guy who can't let sin go. He can't just say, hey, you're good, all things are forgetting, bygones are bygones, don't worry about it. You can't stand before God and be like, man, my bad. And he's like, no, I know, I know how it is, man, I was, I was you. He can't do it like that. His character is too perfect, so he has to punish sin. So he demonstrates his justice towards Jesus that presents the, so that he would be righteous, morally perfect still, and declare those of us not guilty righteous to the ones who have faith. And then it says in verse 26, at the end, or I'm sorry, in verse 25, he says, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. This is a very powerful verse. This is an amazing verse. And Tom doesn't permit me to dig as deep as I want to, but this is what he's saying essentially, that God for a long time has been willing to overlook punishing people for the sins that they deserve because he knew one day his son's death would be punishment enough. So Jesus' death is so significant that God could patiently allow people to sin and allow things like bulls and goats and the blood of animals. Let's just be, Hebrews already says this, right? Bulls and goats did not please God, right? Let's just be honest. If somebody... <clears throat> uh, when Mike Brown was killed in 2014, they, his, his family felt like they lost the, the legal battle. The police officer was, was declared not guilty. But his parents took them to civil court, and they won a lawsuit. They won a significant amount of money. I can't remember what it was. And one of the things his mom said after the court case, his dad didn't even talk. His mom just said, that money will never bring my son back. She said, that will never bring my son back. Never. Like it wasn't, it didn't satisfy her. I mean, she accepted it, she took it, but it didn't satisfy the pain that she was experiencing. Make no mistake, there's no bull, goat, doves, or whatever animal that God allowed them to kill for the purpose of their sinfulness. Like in the Day of Atonement, what they would do is the high priest would lay his hands on a goat and sort of metaphorically transfer the sins of all of Israel onto this goat, and then this goat would just wander off into the wilderness. God says in Hebrews 9 and 10, make no mistake, that really wasn't, I let that go, and I set that in place only because the real sacrifice and the only blood that would appease the wrath that I have, I knew was coming later on. So I let that go. That didn't take care of it, though. Don't, get, don't, don't misunderstand. And that's what he's trying to tell the Jews. Don't misunderstand the law that you were given. I gave you that and told you what to do when you sin. Yes, but that didn't satisfy my wrath fully. That was me being patient because I knew that my son was going to die. And that was significant enough to me that I'm e I was even willing to forgive your sins back here because I knew what was going to take place right here. And that's so significant that this took place right here, and we live over here, and it's able to forgive our sins way over here. 
Keep in mind, this is the same one who created everything, who gave life. And then after doing all that, gives his life. Verse 26. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith. Verse 27 through 30. What should my response be to this? Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No. On the contrary, by the law of faith. For we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? It sounds like a weird question to ask right there. But he's anticipating an objection. Every time he asks a question, he's anticipating hypothetically what people are thinking. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of course. Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Here's what he's saying. I don't know if you know that. Some of you know this, right? We were talking about this uh, yesterday. A group of us were in here talking. Theologically speaking, and this, this, every, a lot of people can have this told about them, but people who classify themselves typically as Calvinists are usually marked with an arrogant bent. A lot of them can be very arrogant because their theology is in place and they can be very arrogant. I thought someone told the joke, how do you know when someone's a Calvinist? Because they'll correct you for not being one or something like that. Right? So I would say, some guys get a bad name, right? Some people get a bad name. But there are people I've seen, especially in Facebook community church, you know, depending on, depending on what small group you're in in Facebook community church, you will see a number of this happen. People who feel like they are better than people because of their theology, right? And they boast about their theology, and they boast about preaching the gospel, yet haven't told one person about Jesus all year. So when I go online and I get into these debates, I'll just say, who was the last person you shared the gospel with? When was it and how did it go? No response. Dot, 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 and then no response. Right? People are boasting because my theology is better than yours. Boasting. So what he's saying is, look, you were saved by grace through Jesus Christ. What are you boasting for then? What is boasting? Is that the response you should have? You should be confident? No. You should be humbled. You see, a person who understands Reformed theology, really, should be the least arrogant because you fundamentally believe that God chose you before the foundation of the world and not because of anything you did. So if you actually believe that, then you should be the most humble. You should be the most humble if you live that theology outrightly. What are you boasting for? Well, this is what he's saying. Where is boasting? Where is boasting? By what kind of law? By one of works? No. So he's telling the Jews, what are you boasting for about having a law? Okay, yes, you got the instruction manual, good. You had a better head start on how to put together the bike than these people did. But you still didn't put together the bike. That would be like me giving my son a bike that he keeps crashing on. I'm showing y'all, hey, I had the instruction manual, look at this. He still can't ride the bike. His knees are scraped up. They didn't ride the bike. What are you boasting in the law for? No. It's excluded. Because it's about faith. It's about someone else's work. If you're going to boast, boast in what he did. Boast in someone else's work. Now, we've all been tempted. Have you ever been tempted to take credit for something you ain't do? Oh, it's just me? Okay. You ever bring up a point, somebody be like, wow, that was a good point. Man, that was, man, you don't say you just read that somebody's tweet. <laughs> you just be like, thank you, man. Yeah, I was just, you know, I was thinking about what we were talking about, man, and just <laughs> chess out. That was a good point, man. Wow, that was sharp, man. Hey, we'll get together and talk some more. Uh, uh, <laughs> Listen, if you read in chapters real quick before you hang with somebody, you wrong. You wrong. <laughs> And I stand by this statement. If you pray longer when you're in public than private, you're a Pharisee. That's something from the men's meeting. You had to be there. The men who were there, they know. Where's boasting? Where's boasting? None. It's not there. 
If you truly understand God, righteousness, and salvation, then what do you have to boast in? Because you didn't do anything. All you did was prove you can't obey God. I can't do it. So that's why Paul says, look, I boast in my weaknesses. I boast in my weaknesses then because that glorifies God. I can't do it. The Jews felt like they were boasting in the fact that we have the law. We know the truth. And the Gentiles were like, you didn't live it. So there's like, it's just this whole... After hearing the reality of how one is saved, it's clear that it's by faith in Jesus, not in faith in yourself. You are saved because of what someone else did. So if you're going to boast, boast of what someone else did, namely Jesus Christ. And then he asks a hypothetical question in verses 30. He asks some more hypothetical questions. Is God, that, well, 29, God, God of the Jews only? No. Is he not God of the Gentiles? So yes, of the Gentiles, of course. Since there is only one God who will justify the faith and then circumcised through faith. So the Jews were tempted to think that, okay, well then God, wait a minute. God's the God of the Jews and we have this law. Then the God, he must be different with the Gentiles. Like, no, it's the same thing. They need, you need Jesus. They need Jesus. Yes, you were given the instruction manual and they won't, but you both need the same thing. There's one tool that you're missing. The instruction manual, you couldn't find it. They didn't have it. There's one tool that you're missing that will fix the bike. Here it is. Oh! You ever have that happen when you're trying to put something together and you're looking at it, you put it together wrongly, and then you're like, wait a minute, what is this screw for? And you look at the thing and you turn it upside down and you realize, oh, man. Oh, okay, I got to take this. Then you take it apart and then it works and it's not wobbly anymore. And you're like, yes, I want to be an engineer. Right? <laughs> Here's the last tool that you need to put the bike together. And in this analogy, and this theological reality, it's Jesus Christ. Yes, Jews, you need it. Gentiles, you need it. We need it. We need Jesus. There's only one way of salvation, one God. And then he circles back in verse 30 through the idea of circumcision, because circumcision for the Jews was still very important to them. That was a fundamental aspect of what made them be in the family of God. That was how they identify themselves very significantly. Kind of like Catholics who get confirmed. They think, hey, I'm good. I got confirmed when I was 12. Well, you're 56 now. You ain't been to Catholic church since you were 12. <laughs> what does that mean? What are you talking about? That confirmation doesn't mean anything. God is saying, now that Jesus has come, that circumcision is not, doesn't make you in a family. It's faith in Jesus that does. So the fact that they don't have circumcision doesn't mean they're out of the family. They have faith in Jesus. You're all family now. Then he goes to this in verse 31. Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Here's the thing. Because we believe in Jesus Christ, right? What did Jesus say about the law? He said, I come to fulfill the law, not abolish it, right? If Jesus had said, I come to abolish the law, then we would say, okay, then we don't care about the law at all. The law has no point anymore. Jesus said, I come to fulfill the law, not abolish it. So in other words, if we believe in Jesus Christ, we're saying that we believe in everything he stood for, everything he did, and everything that he believed. So if Jesus did not think the law was a bad thing, then we do not think the law was a bad thing because he fulfilled the law. So we don't dismiss the law. We don't look at it like it's a bad thing. We just know our ultimate salvation isn't connected to the law. It's connected to Jesus because he he, he, he fulfilled the law. He didn't abolish it. So we don't think, oh, who cares about the law? And here's the point, case in point, right? None of us think like, oh, okay, the law is gone, so do not steal, do not do nothing. No. You don't think like, oh, okay, we should the Ten Commandments off the No. Because Jesus simplified them and expanded them for how we live. So we don't have the strict Ten Commandments, but it's all permeated throughout the New Testament and what he taught. And if we have faith in Jesus, we're saying we believe in what you believed in. We, we connect with what you said and what you did and what you believe. So if you believe the law is good and the law reveals how sinful we are, then we believe that too. We're good with that. So we don't nullify the law. We don't nullify it at all. He says, no, we don't get rid of it. No, because of faith, we uphold it. Why do we uphold it? Because Jesus fulfilled it. So it was important to Jesus. It's got to be important to us. 
He didn't see the law as a bad thing. Its intent was to remind people of what's right and wrong, because remember, when Adam and Eve bit the fruit in Genesis 3, everyone determined what was right and wrong in their own eyes. The book of Judges ends by saying, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's the point. It's like, no, no, no. This is what Jesus did. Okay, let me come. Let me explain to you. To go, let's go back to the garden. Remember, we were created for Genesis 1 and 2, but we live in Genesis 3. Let's go back to the garden. Let me tell you how you're supposed to live. Let me do it for you, demonstrate it. Let me explain it. Let me have these men write it down. I'm going to preserve this until I come back. And that's how you do it. So that's why we still live. That's why we obey. We don't think the law, we just know that the law in and of itself isn't going to save us. We know that. So we don't see it as a bad thing. In fact, by having faith that Jesus filled it perfectly, we still see it as a means to living the way God commands. And in various ways we do that. We just don't depend on that for our salvation because God called us to have faith in Jesus Christ, not works in Jesus Christ for salvation at least. Faith is a central part of what God is after, and we'll see that in chapter 4 where Paul takes us back to Abraham and sort of when he was given faith, and that was before Moses was given the law way before. Amen? Your take-home is to cultivate all as best as you can. When you think about Jesus at the beginning created everything, gave life, later on gives his life. That God's patience towards us. Now, I don't believe that fundamentally once you become a Christian, that you are technically still a sinner. I don't believe that. I believe you've sinned, but I believe your identity has changed. I believe you are a saint, you are a son, a co-heir, a royal priest, a brother, sister, daughter, sheep. You are all these things. But we still sin. We still struggle with it. Sometimes we don't struggle with it. We just do it. And God is patient with us. Because of what Jesus did here, even though we're doing it way over here. So this is the time span of time. All the sins that happen here, God said, I can be patient here because I know what's going to happen here. And then we live right here, and he, God says, I can be patient because of what happened here. That's how serious Jesus is dying on the cross is. And because of God's righteousness, his moral character, because of God's justice, his anger towards wrath. He cannot make us not guilty unless he deals with it. So if you reject Jesus Christ, then by default you're saying, I can do this apart from him. And then you have to live perfectly. And even non-Christians know nobody's perfect. Father, thank you for your word, for the reality of it. This concludes our Romans 3. I thank you for just, Lord, I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I don't have the skill set to articulate as, as vividly and as passionately as this passage does. I, I can't get out what I feel and, and say it in such a way that we are all, just, just, just like what Mike was, was noticing that we're, we're not as expressive as we could be at times. I, I, just, I, I lack the ability, Father, to, to, to communicate in such a way that people would see the significance of this act. So I, so I pray, Lord, that where I fall short of communicating, that you would stir our hearts and our affections so that we see that let us use other aspects of your word to make us be in awe of the words that we heard today and so forth and so on. I acknowledge my, my weakness and my inability at times to, to really do that in a way that that I just, even I can't express how I feel as I'm studying this and thinking through this and reading this. There's, there's something about you who giving all life that gave your life. It's just incredible to me. And the, and, and the mercy in which you have towards us long after that action, based on that action of Jesus dying on the cross. And I just, I can't, I just, it's, it's too much for me. And so I, I just pray that you, that you would help us 
and help our affections be stirred. And as we, as we transition to communion, and, and for those of us who do believe in you, that we take a moment and just add to what we've heard today, a reflection on this. You've given us a significant, meaty presentation of the good news. This is, this is the com compound, dense version of Christ died on the cross for my sins. There is a serious transaction of you presenting your son. And so, Lord, as we now transition to taking communion, may we just be joyfully affected by that. May we be in awe of your mercy up to the cross and after it. May we be humbled by your presenting your son. May we be in awe of the one who gave all men life, gives his life for all men. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen.